Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 65, The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein. No race was ever won in the first corner. But many have been lost there. I should know. I was born to be a race car driver. But there's only one problem. That's not me. That's me. He picked me out of a pile of pups, a tangled mass of paws and tails. <laughs> this one. Definitely this one. The pick of the litter. She always said that. Well, just a minute now. We were thinking of keeping them. He always said that, too. Hey. Call it fate, call it luck. All I knew was I was meant to be his dog. Do you like that, huh? Like it. I loved it. Is this life? Sound. Smells. I felt like I truly belonged. Is this love? In racing, your car goes where your eyes go. Some newbie kitty. Not really much of a dog person. It's more person than dog. Denny was clearly taken with her grooming. She probably bathed every day for all I knew. Does he always stare at people like this? If he likes them. Set me free. The best drivers don't dwell on the future or the past. Set me free. The best drivers focus only on the present. No one knows what curves life will throw at you. But if a driver has the courage to create his own conditions, then the rain is simply rain. But for now, all I want is one more lap. Faster, Denny. Faster. Oh, sweet boy, come here. It must be amazing to have a body that can carry an entire creature inside. I just hoped it would look like me. And welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature and sometimes emojis. I think we'd have a race car and a dog emoji. <laughs> and we take a thorough look at a particular book that we have chosen and we determine whether it is worthy of its positive, negative, or neutral reputation. Maybe it deserves to be banned. Who knows? And is it required reading? So I'm Stella. I've chosen this book because I thought maybe it would be lighter fare <laughs> given our two past picks. But of course, it's not the lightest affair. And my co-pilot with me today is my good friend, Tom Panarese. Next up, Marley and me. <laughs> I know. And seriously. then, And then in June or in July, 
Old Yeller. Oh, jeez. <laughs> just go through yeah. all of the books. Well, I, I said, yeah, I said with this pick that we were trying to, you know, diversify and have a POV from a, a people group that we haven't had before. So we could continue on in that strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll grab some of these Scooby-Doo fanfic and uh, we'll, we'll cover that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, it's spring. How are yes. you doing? My, I'm feel, I'm feeling a little bit, a little bit more energized lately because it's not as, um, you know, dark out all the time. Uh, my allergies, on the other hand, have decided that, like, you know, it's like, oh, hey, it's spring, <laughs> so, so I, I sniffle a lot. Unfortunately, I don't have editing software to get rid of that, so <laughs> we'll just do the best we can. I'll do my best. Do you feel more productive when? The day is longer or when there's light out and you feel like you can work? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I I think I get as much done as I do at any point in the year. It doesn't feel as, as heavy. It doesn't weigh as heavy on me as it does, say, in the winter. Mm. Um, and maybe it's be part, because there's partially because of all the light and everything, but also partially because at this point I'm um, about eight weeks out from the end of the school year. So, like we're almost at the end of the third quarter, so we're we're hitting that that last part of the year. So you do tend to feel a little bit more productive as you go cl- get closer and closer to the end of May, right? So, yeah. so that that contributes to it. But yeah, I know I, I this is around the time of the year where I want to go do more things or kind of create more free time for myself where I can too. So I think that's another motivator to be productive, to just to get stuff to get stuff off of my plate. I a fun fact I guess about me is that I always feel really productive if I don't have work or I've taken off work and it's a weekday. I can usually get a lot more done than a weekend. I think it's just mm-hmm. my mindscape of like it's the weekend. It's so hard to be productive because I just want to rest. Whereas a weekday, yeah. I'm thinking, oh look at how productive I am. I'm doing all this work here. So. Yeah, I, I will schedule if, if I decide to take a day off or I have like a snow day or something, I will like schedule my day out or like I'm, I make like that list and I burn through it or, or I feel more. Pre- it's just, yeah, there's something about the middle of the week or whatever that you feel a little bit more engaged in it. But the weekend, you're just like, no, I just want to sit and watch TV or read. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of our characters, of course, that's that's all he does is. You know, sit around and watch TV, maybe. He doesn't have a chance mm-hmm. to read books because he lost his opposable thumb. They were cut off when he was a puppy. But no. we are talking, yeah, the art of racing in the rain. And there is a website that if you go, it's something like, does the dog die? And so I don't <laughs> I know if they do books, but I know that they do movies. So just be aware that he lives a good long life. But he does pass away in the end. But there, it's almost like he doesn't pass. He certainly like moves on. But we'll we'll get into all of that. So, what is your particular history with this novel? This is my history with the novel. Um, I the title sounded familiar when you announced it last episode. But I prior to that, I so I may have seen it on a shelf or read about it in a magazine or. or uh, maybe seen a an ad for it or something um but never read it 
So, uh, so yeah, this is pretty much it. Yeah, my history, I read this before, and I was a part of a, I think informally a part of a book club at Smith uh-huh. Lake with women that were not in my generation. They were older than I was. One of them was a mom that I was pretty close with whose daughter was the drum major, I think, two after me at high school and so I trained her and and, you know just became close with that particular family so I was asked to join that book club and so this was one of the books and I really enjoyed it and then someone at my previous work the oncology clinic was giving away some books and this popped up and she said I really like it but I don't think I'll read it again I'm like you know what I think I would reread this and of course we had come to the point where we we had read a couple that were not the most uplifting. So I was thinking, well, this, I remember it being fun, <laughs> but I also remember there being some, some sad and, and poignant moments. And I had recently watched, I waited until Redbox watched the film, which there's one question that I will address the film directly because I, I find it really interesting to consider, but it's a fun novel. I think it, well, I, why am I even doing that right now? Yeah, so that's my so this is the second time that I am reading this. And yeah, I guess we'll get into the history of the author then. And I took this from his own website. I've started citing things when I find it, <laughs> as Tom can attest from our reading notes. So mm-hmm. Garth Stein is the internationally best-selling author of the contemporary classic, The Art of Racing in the Rain, the story of a beloved philosopher dog named Enzo who teaches us everything we need to know about being human, a major motion picture starring Kevin Costner, uh, Milo Ventimiglia, and Amanda Seyfried will hit the big screen, of course, this summer, which this is past now the art of racing the rain has sold more than six million copies worldwide been translated into 36 languages and spent more than three years on the new york times bestseller list the novel inspired a young reader edition as well as four children's picture book and a stage adaptation by book it repertory theater in seattle stein is the author of three other novels a sudden light how evan broke his head and other secrets and raven stole the moon as well as a full-length Play, Brother Jones, Brother Jones, which had its premiere in Los Angeles and it was described as brimming with intensity by the Los Angeles Weekly. He's the co-founder of Seattle Seven Writers, a nonprofit collective dedicated to energizing readers, writers, and their communities by providing funding, programming, and donations of free books to those in need. And in 2010, the novel Live, I think probably instead of live that's always a tough word the to novel do. live <laughs> i know that's instead of the novel live was conceived by garth and brought 36 authors together to write a novel in six days before a live audience that sounds really interesting the benefit writing marathon was streamed live on the internet drawing a global following which was an unprecedented experience at that time garth has been named inaugural chair of the author leadership circle of bink book industry charitable foundation stein earned a ba from columbia university and holds a master's of fine arts and film from columbia he's produced and directed several award-winning documentaries and music videos and is the winner of multiple literary awards including two pnba awards 
born in Los Angeles. It's kind of, he's going backwards here, which is interesting with his bio. Born in Los Angeles and raised in Seattle, Garth's ancestry is diverse. His mother, a native of Alaska, is of Tlingit, Indian, and Irish descent. His father, a Brooklyn native, hey, that's Tom, is the child of Jew Jewish emigrants from Austria. Garth lives in Seattle with his wife and three sons. He got involved with high-performance driver education in 2001, received his racing license with the Sports Car Club of America, SCCA, and went on to win the points championship in the Northwest Region Spec Miata class in 2004. He left racing after a serious crash while racing in the rain. So, uh, yet another situation of write what you know. <laughs> uh, any comments on that bio or anything to add? No. No, off the top of my head, I can see how he's pulling from real life for, mm -hmm. uh, for some of his characters here, but yeah. Absolutely. I don't know how you... Well, I shouldn't say that because I think we have certain... Many authors that become armchair experts because they do lots of research. But a lot of this is so intricate within the novel that it makes sense that it was someone who knows what the heck is going on. Just kind of like the feel of the car, yeah. what that feels like. I don't know that someone could do research unless it were hands-on in, in knowing mm -hmm. what, yeah, what to do and what it feels like. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do the plot synopsis now. I got this from Lit Charts, so thank you. Lit Charts does not sponsor our podcast. Enzo, an elderly dog, is sprawled on the kitchen floor of his owner, Denny's apartment, in a puddle of his own urine. He tells the reader that he's staging this display so that Denny, who has been through so much in the last few years, will see that it's time to let Enzo go. When Denny gets home, he gives Enzo a bath, cleans up the mess, and calls Mike, his friend and co-worker, and asks him to cover for him the next day so he can take Enzo to the vet. He says he's not sure it's a round-trip visit, and despite having set it up, Enzo's surprised. He reaffirms, though, that it's for the best, and now Denny can be free. Enzo loves racing and sprinkles racing strategy, wisdom, and stories throughout the novel. His favorite driver is Aaron Senna a charismatic driver who drove exceptionally well in the rain, just like Denny does. The events surrounding his death, however, remain a mystery. Enzo goes back in time to explain the 10 years of events leading up to his quote-unquote display. Denny, a professional race car driver, adopted him as a puppy and moved him to Seattle. For the first year, it was just Denny and Enzo, but then Denny met Eve and quickly fell in love with her, which some of those scenes, though, the sex scenes, basically, of Eve saying something like, the field is fertile. Is fertile. And, then, <laughs> and at first, when you're first reading that, you're like, is Enzo creating this display but then when she's sick you realize no they actually that's just like something they do right before having sex i guess so i guess in preparation for having a baby so they both realize what they're doing enzo tried to love eve but resented her for coming between himself and denny denny and eve were married within the year and eve soon became pregnant when the baby was born denny was across the country competing after the birth eve asked enzo to protect her daughter whom they named zoe Danny returned the next day and shares that another driver on his team crashed their car and he never even got to drive. 
The next several months passed quickly and happily until even Denny went back to work and Zoe was put in daycare. Enzo was left home alone. He was bored and lonely until one day Denny left the TV on by accident, and Enzo spent the entire day watching. From that time on, Denny leaves the TV on for Enzo during the day, and Enzo's education truly begins. Enzo believes himself to have a very human soul and uses television to learn how to be more human. After seeing a documentary on Mongolia, he learns that dogs are reincarnated as men when they die, and this becomes his goal. He spends the rest of his life trying to be as human as possible to prepare for his next life as a human. After Zoe's second birthday, the family moves into a small house. Enzo can smell something wrong with Eve, although she doesn't know it yet. She begins experiencing sporadic episodes of migraines, nausea, and mood swings. One weekend, when Denny is gone for a race, Eve experiences a headache so bad she packs up Zoe and leaves for her parents' house, leaving Enzo alone for three days. Enzo rations the toilet water, but can do nothing about food and on the set and also he he's a very good dog he actually poops and pees all on a mat in one area and on the second night he actually begins to hallucinate he sees zoe's favorite toy a stuffed zebra come to life and molest all of her other toys when enzo goes to attack the zebra eviscerates itself when denny returns to find zoe's toys in ruins uh, he hits enzo and enzo believes the zebra framed him it skips some stuff because you don't find out about all of that stuffed animal business until zoe sees it and cries because denny mm -hmm. first is very proud of enzo like good job and he's also upset at eve for leaving her so that skipped some things there the following year oh and i should say that later on denny apologizes to enzo and says that he'll never do it again which he he never hits him again the following year denny secures a seat in a traveling race car for a season it means many absences but eve encourages him to go the first few races go very poorly for denny and when he and eve are discussing it at dinner one night denny says he needs to go away the following week to practice with his crew eve is angry and scared and zoe's refusing to eat her dinner leading to a bigger fight eve finally agrees to make zoe a hot dog but when she tries to cut open the package the knife slices into her hand eve terrified refuses to go to the doctor and denny agrees to bandage it at home the season improves for denny and eve's health improves for no apparent reason in august the family goes to the slippery slabs a spot on a creek where zoe can play while lifting zoe eve slips and falls on the rocks hitting her head hard denny rushes her to the emergency room where they discover a large mass in her brain eve spends months in the hospital trish and maxwell eve's parents which Enzo calls them the twins because they look the same. Talk Denny into having Eve stay at their house when she's released and to allow Zoe to stay with them as well so she can spend as much time as possible with her dying mother. Denny begrudgingly agrees. On her first night home, Eve, terrified, asks Enzo to protect her and not let her die that night. He stays awake the entire night. Several months pass. In February, Denny, Enzo, and Zoe go to the mountains with Eve's extended family so Zoe can meet them. While there, a teenage daughter of one of Eve's cousins, Anika, develops a crush on Denny. Trigger warning? What, when she learns that Denny will be leaving early to beat predicted bad weather, she decides she needs to leave early as well, and Denny agrees to take her. The five-hour drive takes ten due to the weather, and Anika decides to stay with Denny that night. Denny and Enzo fall asleep, and Enzo awakes or awakens to see Anika at the foot of Denny's bed taking Denny's pants off, and Enzo tells the reader that what she did must have been without Denny's consent. Finally, Enzo barks and wakes Denny, who leaps away, horrified. Anika tells Denny she loves him, but he refuses to engage with her. She calls her father, and he comes to pick her up. 
This is a detail, so that'll come back to us. In the spring, Denny takes Enzo to California with him to a racetrack where he'll be driving for a television commercial, and he takes Enzo out on the track for a speed lap. Enzo loves the experience, and it cements his love of racing. Bark twice to go faster. A month after they return to <laughs> Seattle, Eve dies. <sighs> Denny gets the phone call while he's at the dog park with Enzo, and overcome by emotion, Enzo runs away and kills and eats a squirrel. When Denny finds him later, they drive to Maxwell and Trish's house so Denny can say goodbye. After he does, Maxwell and Trish tell Denny that they're suing him for Zoe's custody. And to be fair, they do ask him, but they, I think they were ready for that route. Denny hires Mark Fine, a lawyer whose car Denny works on at the auto shop. He tells Denny that the suit is bogus and it'll be an easy win. Later that day, however, police officers come to Denny's work to arrest him for felony rape of a child. Anika's family had decided to press charges for what happened in February. Mark pays Denny's bail, and Denny and Enzo attend Eve's funeral a few days later. Enzo is diagnosed with hip dysplasia after experiencing major hip pain from walking hours to and from the funeral. And they weren't even allowed really to be at the funeral. They had to stay away. There was a scene that was starting. As yeah. winter arrives, Seattle gets a light dusting of snow. On a walk one night, Enzo is hit by a car. When Denny tries to pay the vet, he discovers he has no money, and Denny is embarrassed and ready to give up. A few weeks later, Denny and Enzo go to visit Mike to sign a settlement, granting Denny a generous visitation schedule and settling for non-felony charges regarding Anika's case. Mike hands Denny a souvenir pen from the zoo to sign with, and Enzo sees a zebra floating in the pen. He realizes that the zebra isn't an outside demon, but rather a force within all of us, and he decides that Denny isn't going to accept the settlement Ignoring the pain from his hips, Enzo grabs the papers off the table and leads Mike and Denny on a chase through the house, culminating in a leap out the window. In the backyard, Enzo urinates on the papers, and Denny decides he doesn't want to give up. Later that summer, while Denny is teaching at the Seattle Racing School, Luca Pantoni, a man who works for Ferrari, asks Denny to show him around the track. After Denny lays down some hot laps, wowing the students and Enzo, Luca offers Denny a job testing cars and teaching for Ferrari in Italy. Denny declines, saying he can't leave the state, and Luca says the job will stay open until Denny is ready. One winter evening, when Denny and Enzo are out on a walk, they spot Anika sitting at an outdoor cafe. When they reach Anika, both Denny and Anika feign surprise at their meeting, and Denny asks if he can sit down and speak with her for a moment. And there's a friend there, which he keeps, uh, just so... Mm -hmm. Everyone knows it's on the up and up. He apologizes for what happened and tells Anika that a relationship between them would never have worked. He says that the first time he saw Eve, he could barely function, and he hopes that Anika finds someone someday that makes her feel like that. Finally, he says that because of her suit, the lawsuit, he'll never be allowed to see Zoe again. When Denny is finished, he and Enzo trot home triumphant. Denny's parents, whom Enzo has never met, come to visit. Denny's mother is blind, and when she meets Zoe, Zoe sits very still while her grandmother explores her face. On the final night of their visit, Denny's father explains to Denny that they took out a reverse mortgage on their house so Denny could pay his legal fees. When Mike asks the next day, Enzo learns that Denny's parents effectively disowned him when he refused to care for his mother, but he had slowly built up a relationship over the last several years. Denny's criminal trial begins soon after. Every day, Mike escorts Denny to court while Tony, Mike's partner, takes care of Enzo. On the third day, Tony receives a phone call that something is happening and he and Enzo rush to the courthouse. They wait in the rain and Enzo falls asleep and dreams of testifying in court using <laughs> Stephen Hawking's voice synthesizer. <laughs> he wakes to hear Denny saying that it's over. He won. Trish and Maxwell drop their custody suit the next day. 
While Denny is making cookies in preparation for Zoe's return, the phone rings and it's Luca Pantoni. Denny says he'd like to accept Luca's offer and asks Luca why he's made such a generous offer. Luca says that his own wife died and it was the help from a mentor, his predecessor at Ferrari, that saved him and so he wished to pass the gift on. The next day, Enzo can barely get up. He goes to the kitchen where Denny is making pancakes and collapses. Denny cradles him, and Enzo experiences visions of the fields where he was born and flashes of the documentary on Mongolia. He starts to run through the fields, still hearing Denny's voice, and dies in Denny's arms. The text jumps to a point in the future where Denny has just won a Formula One race on the same track where Senna died. Zoe, now an adult, pulls up a golf cart with two of Denny's fans, a father and a son. They ask for Denny's autograph, and Denny asks the boy his name. The boy replies that his name is Enzo, and he's going to be a champion. Denny gives the father his phone number and offers to teach Enzo to drive when he's old enough. Oh, okay. I think that gave a pretty good picture of what mm. the art of the racing in the rain is. So first off, Tom, did you enjoy the dog book as you texted me one day? <laughs> dog book. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I can't wait to dive into that reply. I really liked it. I think that it was a reason why I chose it in order to read it again. I knew it was something that I enjoyed. I think that mm-hmm. being a dog book, you wouldn't expect there to be too much. You know, is it just going to be funny and, and frilly and escapism? But I think there's a lot of depth to it, like spiritual depth and relationship drama depth as well and Mm -hmm. it's all made really interesting by having this perspective be of a non-human i I feel like the only other book i could say that of is and oh shoot i can't remember what it's called now oh clara and the sun which i recently read where you're following an artificial friend so just looking at Uh, humanity from the outside is really intriguing so short answer yes i did enjoy it I, i thought the narration from enzo's point of view was done very well because it could have very much become a really cheap gimmick Hmm. you know or like like sort of a cheesy gimmick and i don't think he ever got gimmicky with it yeah i would agree okay i didn't order these questions so i'm looking (laughs) where should we start so i guess we'll just start with where we where i ended off in in my little my blurb right there so just talking about humanity what, what do you think we can learn from enzo about his beliefs of humanity and what it means to be human and as a, a sub point that I found, uh, I got this question, I think, from Princeton Book Review, that some early readers of the novel have observed that viewing the world through a dog's eyes makes for a greater appreciation of being human. I think an appreciation for being human with regard to all the capability that we have, I think there are things that Enzo wants to do that he can't do, and he's very aware of his own limitations. At the same time, um, on the flip side of the appreciation, because you can appreciate something without by also seeing sort of the downside to things. And I think that there is a pretty full view of what humanity, what it is like to be human in this book. Um, The thing that the, the the thing that's one of the things that stuck with me is the point where Enzo sniffs eve's hand and he can tell something's wrong Mm. and because we have such a limited point of view denny never knows what's wrong until it's absolutely 
in crisis and we never know if Eve actually does know something seriously is wrong with her. It's hinted at that she kind of does, but she keeps refusing doctors. And so, but there's this idea of a limitation that like we're inherently flawed as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no sugarcoating or making humans see like, seem like overly positive or, uh, we're putting them on a pedestal in the book. And I, I did appreciate, I did appreciate that. Absolutely. And I think he learns from some of those flaws, the, the health flaws, of course, he can't really do anything about, but I mm-hmm. think in how people interact with one another, you know, the twins and how they're not the best of people as, as he views them, though he does have a biased perspective. You can also tell, I mean, it, given what transpires it does seem like they might not be the best of people yeah and then uh anika as well and just how people relate to each other and treat each other i think he's observing all of that and so he is you know in his second life once once he or his next life i guess it could be his his fourth or fifth he is wanting to take all the best aspects i think of of being human Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. It's almost a cliche now that the the non-human character is more humans than the human. Like, you know, Stein doesn't really fall too far into that trap, although Enzo is a very human character in in many ways. Um, and it, yeah, again, so it's it is it is very it's character wise, um, at least for the main characters, even. Danny and Enzo and, and even Zoe, it's told very well. They're they're very well written. They're very three dimensional, and uh, and you you get a real sense of who these people are. Agreed. Yeah, and and I feel like a big theme is relationships, and and that's potentially what I guess it depends maybe on your background, and maybe this is becoming because I'm coming from a religious background, but relationships is is such a big part of being human. That, mm-hmm. you know, we seek community with each other, that a lot of it, you know, he, he and Denny having that community and then it starts to, the circle starts to get wider and wider. I think that's also really interesting and, and what it means to be human is, is having that community there and relationships with other people. Yeah, no, that's very true. We'll continue with his philosophy, I think. Uh, so his mm-hmm. observations throughout the novel provide insight into his worldview. Here are some examples. The visible becomes inevitable. Understanding the truth is simple. Allowing oneself to experience it is often technically difficult. No race has ever been won in the first corner. Many races have been lost there. How does his philosophy apply to real life? Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I guess it would depend on how much you actually agree with them, too. Uh, the third one, no race has ever been won in the first corner. Many races have been lost there. I've heard that before to the point where it's almost the cliche. And I can I can see that uh, when I think of, of long-term projects or I think of a long-term or something of a race um, I can see where in the beginning you can – it's hard to come back, you know, rather than it is uh, than it is to keep going. Understanding the truth is simple. Allowing oneself to experience it is often terrifically difficult. That I can see because there is – you know, when we think of, of just our worldviews, the way we interact with people, our approach to solving 
certain problems or looking inward at the truth about our individual selves that and realize understanding that perhaps something has to change about our worldview or something. Mm -hmm. There is a marked difference between I have to be better at X, Y, Z, right? And actually doing it. You know, there's, 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 you know, it comes down to as cliche as it sounds, talk versus action. So I think that's something, I think there's something in there very much. The visible becomes the inevitable. I can see that. I don't think that's an absolute though. I think we, I think sometimes we, we manifest inevitability because something inside us wants it to be that way. And maybe perhaps it's out of a fear of failure. So when the failure happens, we have a, we have a, like kind of a excuse to fall back on, but it doesn't necessarily always happen that way. I agree with you. Yeah. I was, I was looking at that second one about the the truth and it's hard sometimes to you know if someone says something potentially nice about you which could be true but you are just not in a space to i think accept that you know i feel like that's very personally true for many people certainly is for me that people can tell me something i'm like it's very nice (laughs) of you to say have you met me (laughs) but i'm not i'm not saying it yeah yeah and then the visible becomes inevitable i was thinking about self-fulfilling prophecies, prophecies that yeah. kind of stuff which yeah i mean that that happens unfortunately you know i i can only think of negative examples which i really so don't I. want to bring up here i think so <laughs> which i guess maybe that's potentially true but just thinking that oh my gosh is this this is gonna have i see this happening and then it does because i don't know your mind has has brought you there but yeah his philosophies even though for the most part i think they're based in racing mm-hmm. i think it it fits life situations you're right that we may not all agree with some of his philosophies but i think a lot of them honestly do make sense if you kind of sit there and and i think you could probably apply them often to to real life i mean yeah the the race winning in the first corner you know getting starting maybe a new adventure and Mm -hmm. it's not going to be the greatest you know right off the bat it might be but you've got to keep on pushing but if something terrible happens that can kind of derail you or you know it could be ruinous for the rest of the adventure so yeah totally get that i sometimes wonder about sayings like this though and whether or not they're actually constructive because they read like bumper stickers to me sometimes or like the type of thing that somebody would put in a really really nice font and tweet out philosophy is not bumper stickers you know philosophy is something to be debated studied discussed and really delved delved into on a more critical level aristotle and Locke and Rousseau and, and, and Socrates and these people didn't speak and write things that were meant to go on like, you know, a senior quote, you know, I mean, so it frustrates me that I, I think it's funny. I don't know if he's, if he's doing it on purpose or it's just kind of ironic in the way it's done is that he's setting up the way our culture distills the concept of philosophy down to like, clever sayings and successories posters and bumper stickers mm-hmm. now we were just kind of talking it out a little bit and i know we could we could probably take those three things and have a much lengthier conversation about them that would go on and make this podcast episode like a few hours because um, i think there's a lot you could dive into mm-hmm. 
because both of us have studied both uh, religion and, and religion, spirituality and philosophy on different levels, you know, and um, and in different authors and the same authors and stuff. And there's a real there's something to be said about, like, looking into this. I, I and, and this is my cynical view of especially our culture of the way we tend to take all of that and water it down to no race has ever been won in the first quarter. Many races have been lost there because it sounds profound. Mm. I don't know what Garth Stein's feeling on that would be, though, if he's if he is trying to be sincere through Enzo or if he is if he is being critical. I think he's probably trying to be sincere. I don't think he's being critical of our culture in any way. And and my my cynical view of things is kind of projecting that here. Well, it's, you know, oft repeated quotes, I think, lose their poignancy once they're used mm-hmm. over and over again. I mean, whenever, honestly, I mean, this is, you've brought out the cynicism in me, but whenever <laughs> I see Bible verses on license plates, like vanity plates, oh, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, it's number one, I hate out of context Bible quotes because you mm-hmm. need to have the, the full thing. And then I just wonder, like, are you, are you living that? Or is it just there on your vanity plate kind of thing? And and I don't know the person. I don't know their heart. Only God does. But, yeah, it's kind of like that. And, and when people, like, repeatedly say something from the Bible, I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. But are, do you realize, you know, the actual impact of what you're saying in those words kind of thing? So mm-hmm. I do worry about that. Makes you makes you want to be a smart ass and quote like one of those verses from the Bible that's basically like a genealogy rundown, like you know, and Jebusiah begot Nicodemus yeah. begot, you know, just like yeah. you know, yes, that's my Bible quote, <laughs> genealogy. <laughs> listen to, did you listen to S Town? Oh yeah, when it first was on, so it's yeah. been a while. I don't know if you remember this, but the the main character, even though he's a real person, yeah. is one of his favorite quotes was like something about a donkey, and <laughs> you know, so he like took this really dirty thing of like, yeah, you know, this is this is in the Bible. I know this quote, and you're like, yeah, that is actually in the Bible. But what purpose does it serve? Oh yeah, so, the Old Testament's full of that stuff. <laughs> you, let me just say, I mean, we're getting off track here, but the Bible is R rated. Oh yeah, yeah. It's all about the sex and the violence. So if people think that they're not gonna be intrigued by it, you may want to give it a chance. More so the Old Testament than the New Testament. Uh, Okay, so that's a bumper sticker philosophy. (laughs) Yeah. So let me let's just switch then to to Denny. Uh, Do you could you imagine the novel being told from Denny's point of view? How do how do you think it would make the story different? I could, but it would be. I don't know if it would have the level of insight that we get from Enzo. I like Denny as a character, but there's a simplicity to him. Or, like, I think his narration would be too simple. I don't think he's a simple person in a derogatory sort of way. I think there's things that are simple about him, but I think he understands complexity, and I think he's very much – he is a complex man. But I don't think it would be um, complex enough and such um and i I or either that or it would be it would be but it would just be kind of like every other novel i mean the the novelty of having the dog narrate the novel works here yeah i wonder if it would be i feel like it'd be up and down actually i don't know 
No, I, I suppose it would be. Like, emotionally, it'd be very up and mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Depending on what point of life we are with Denny, you know, meeting Eve would be a high. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, he goes through a rough patch, and, there, you know, he is ready to quit at, at certain points. And so I think it would be just, like, really dour for several bits, whereas Enzo, as an outside observer, can look at all of this and not really know, I think, fully what the emotion is, but sort of interpolate, I think, what's happening and how people are feeling. But he's able to give us more of a, I think, a calm and more rational, maybe, understanding of of what's going on. I I don't think there are probably only two times that he's kind of manic. The one time is when he's left on his own for three days, and he's like, Mm -hmm. you know, what's going on there? And then... Maybe as the the trial is kind of heating up and and with um well I guess Anika is a manic moment. And I, then... I would say Eve's death is another moment. Yeah, when he runs off. Yeah, when you yeah. lose it. But otherwise, yeah, he's very even keeled in present. Almost like his nature shows that he likes right, just being mm-hmm. this kind of narrator and this is what's going on and obviously having a an emotional attachment to and a personal investment in the story. But I think he's able to step back enough to remove any sort of extreme emotions. Whereas being human, you know, you've got that freedom to have those emotions. But I think it would be like a wild ride for for Denny. And then we would miss chunks of story because he's gone for a lot. And because I think a big draw of this novel is having Enzo being the narrator, Mm -hmm. you would have to have a particular audience that likes race car driving because you would be focused on that a great deal with Denny. Yeah, the you'd miss out a lot of Eve if you were to make Denny the uh, character, because there there are moments with Eve that are really important. And Enzo is there the night that she has him stay with her the first time. And then after that, he knows that she'll be okay. And then I think he's there when she dies. I'm trying to remember her death scene. I'm pretty sure like she says she says something to him or whatever before she passes away. But I can't remember off the top of my head. She had a really good day like leading up to it. Yeah. But they were elsewhere. I think they were in a park or something when he got the call. She had she they had the party because she said that today is the first day I'm not dead and we're having a party and they have this big party and everything. Um, in fact, it's page 160, um, once to 162. And after that, like he, he sees her, like he, he sees her in a dream dying or something. It's, oh, right, there's right, a, yeah. there's just this connection between the two of them. Yeah. Um, where she says like, do you see, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I wanted with you with me before, cause I wanted you to protect me, but I'm not afraid of it anymore because it's not the end. And I don't think we, that adds so much more depth to the book. Or that shows how Enzo being the narrator adds so much more depth to the book than if one of the human characters was. In the book's darkest moments, one of Zoe's stuffed animals, of course, I should say in in one of the book's darkest moments, I think, even though the zebra does appear again. But one of Zoe's stuffed animals, the zebra comes to life and threatens Enzo. And then, of course, the zebra reappears later on. But what do you think the zebra symbolizes? There's something about control. Like, because the zebra is like a in the beginning. It's a moment of a loss of control for Enzo. 
but then at the end it's like he sees the zebra again and comes to this realization and it becomes a moment of control hmm. so i there there's something to be said about that like you know he the zebra is this sort of like you the, the way he frames it the way he tells it it's almost like a it's like chucky from child's play or something demonic or mm-hmm. or i'm picturing like some one of those like you know like uh like an it, it's it's because it's got like animatronic eyes or something or, or it, it makes noise and those toys can be freaky when they go off spontaneously ask me how i know and uh <laughs> but it's in the middle of this like fever dream he's having because he hasn't eaten in like two days and he tears everything apart. So it shows it's like, but, but at the end he sees the zebra in the pen and takes control of the situation to the point where it pisses on the contract to like communicate to Denny what he is trying to tell him which uh, I really appreciated. Uh, there's some bodily, there's some doggy bodily humor in here. That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, but yeah, so I think I, I saw something regarding control. Okay. Oh boy. Yeah. And I'm trying to connect kind of the, the two, those two moments. Cause I think they are related. Hmm. Do you think it has something to do with Zoe too? I mean, how, he was supposed to protect her like that is mm-hmm. his job. And so sometimes threats come from within the home. Sometimes threats are really close to us and it's it's hard to protect them or you may be unaware that it's a threat. Yeah, I think so. Um, especially since, you know, because he was about to essentially sign his rights away to his daughter. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I have this feeling that signing that over his in-laws win and i know he was supposed to get some sort of visitation or something out of it but i the the in-laws strike me as the type of people who would manipulate that whole situation to the point where they would completely get him out of zoe's life Mm -hmm. it might not happen right away but they would gradually do it yeah um, because, you know, they've made it clear they do not like him. So it's like, you know, they and they play a long game. So and I think I want to say Enzo knew that. Yeah. And that's and that's why he was like, no, we're going to keep fighting this because that's the right thing to do. And he didn't want Denny to give up because he was trying. I think protecting Zoe was part of it. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the synopsis gets to it a little bit, but the fact that we all have maybe a darkness in us as well, and, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. we can control it and sometimes we can't, and that was just something that he had another side of him that came out that you wouldn't expect from such a sweet dog because of the deprivation that he was yeah. living in. It was just out of his control, too. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that's true of humans. You know, sometimes we lack self-control and we do things that later we're like, why did I do that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Hopefully to not, you know, a murderous or evil extent, though, you know, there are those people there as well. So perhaps it is kind of darkness that lingers in us as well. Yeah, mine usually involves food. Um, <laughs> he, he also, with the pen and the zebra and the contract at the end, he's also making sure that he's fulfilling a promise that he made to Eve right when she dies. Because she says, please take care of Denny and Zoe for me, Enzo. They're so wonderful when they're together. Mm. So that's part of it as well. 
you know, and so there was the protecting of, you know, he was protecting the house the first time he was protecting the family or whatever from the, the, the zebra, you know, yeah. perhaps he was protecting Zoe, but it was, it went horribly wrong. Yeah. This time he is being loyal to somebody who was to, to Danny, who's really important to him, but it's almost like it takes him a while to realize how important he and Eve are to each other. Because Kano's at first he was he didn't like her, which makes sense. Like mm. you know, there's a territorial a- aspect to this, but by the end, like there's a real love there. So he, as much as Denny, is doing what they can, what's best, what she would have wanted. Yeah. Oh boy. Mm. So we've been speaking about Eve. And uh-huh. I think you put this in there, which is funny. I think people always expect me to comment on these things. So let it for personal reasons, <laughs> Barbara. So is Eve a woman in a refrigerator? And would you like to explain what that is, Tom, for people who may not be aware of what it is? Okay. So the concept. <laughs> you sounded like you were gearing up to be a mansplainer. <laughs> Well, actually, no, the con- the concept of the woman in the refrigerator was coined, I believe, by Gail Simone, because mm-hmm. I think years ago she actually had a website called Women in Refrigerators. It's a reference to Green Lantern issue 50, somewhere in the early 50s, uh, 51, 52 or 53, a volume two or three, a volume three of Green Lantern, which was the uh, one of the first few issues of the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern in the 90s. Major force, a villain, had kidnapped, killed Kyle's girlfriend, Alex, and cut her up and shoved her into a refrigerator. And Kyle came home to find her in the fridge. This took him from a character who was a slacker and never really took life seriously to suddenly on his hero's journey. And now he's going to take all of this uh, seriously, kind of the same way when, um, you know, Luke comes upon the uh, flambe that is his aunt and uncle on Tatooine. It's like, I'm going to go with you to Alderaan. So the concept of the women in refrigerator came about to basically be when you have a female character who is there and then is killed in order to make the male character develop more like as a, as a point of character development for the male character. So that was my question. Is Eve for the male character or characters in this novel? Is she fridged? That's interesting. You know, and I was, you, you said character. I, I immediately was thinking of Denny and I yeah. felt like his characterization doesn't necessarily change in my opinion, but that's because of the perspective that we're reading from. But mm-hmm. when you said characters, I was like, oh, wait. There's Enzo here. <laughs> what do we think about Enzo and his his character? Um, yeah. arc? I mean, is it absolutely necessary that Eve dies? I mean, could this novel have like, you know, I mean, so, you know, on some level it might be because, you know, you do end up with a plot with a divorce that way with the, with the, with the custody battle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But what if he and he got divorced? You know, like that, it's a slightly different novel then, but mm-hmm. then the whole thing, the dynamic with Zoe is different and stuff like that. You know, like, so I'm, I can go both ways with this, but I think it's worth exploring because you are killing off a female character for the sake of the development of a male character. Yeah. 
But I also like to think about the characterization that she is given. I think if you were mm-hmm. to, if it were to have been very quick, mm-hmm. she was, I don't know, like a robbery gone wrong or she's hit yeah. by a car. I think that would be, that is true. like, I would immediately say yes. But because we don't even know, well, she, I shouldn't say we, she doesn't know about it. You can tell there's something going on, which we never learn about her in hospitals because that's a pretty bad knife wound that she gets in the kitchen because we know later on that she can't use her thumb very well after that. Yeah. Not wanting to go in there. And then it's just dragged on for a long you know, amount of time. And through mm-hmm. that, we get to see her build her relationship with Enzo and see – you know, what is it like? Um, how taxing is it to have a sick family member on the I shouldn't that sounds very insensitive. But just you know, no, what is no, it yeah. to, what is it like to have a sick family member when you're looking at the people who aren't sick kind of thing? So I feel like because it is prolonged, we get more of a dimension to Eve. And so that's why I lean a bit towards no, because I mm-hmm. think it's almost like it serves to raise her character's purpose and then build her relationship with Enzo. But then, of course, a lot of stuff happens. You know, you've got half of the novel left for mm-hmm. Denny. But I, I feel like he doesn't necessarily change. I mean, the conflict changes. We have a new yeah. conflict now. But Denny, I feel like, stays pretty static throughout. Yeah, he, he finds strength through the conflict. So he was always a strong person. He yeah. finds more and more strength. I'm I'm with you there because and I think the important thing is is her development as a character. But I, I did want to bring it up because, you know, usually the, the purest form of the fridge character is that the woman character is one or two dimensional. You know, like Alex in that Green Lantern issue, the original thing, all she was for the first – she's only in like a couple of issues of the series and she's kind of the – wet blanket girlfriend who keeps telling Kyle that he has to grow up. She's basically being his mother, but she's his girlfriend, like that type of girlfriend. And then she's killed. And he's like, Oh man, I really need to be more serious. So when you have an underdeveloped, a cliched character that's female and she gets killed, yeah, there, there's your fridging. So perhaps if Eve is not this, it's actually a good example of how maybe we are of when and when not to apply such labels, you know, like, because, yeah. because, you know, uh, she didn't necessarily have to die. We could have done this a different way, but her death did bring a significant amount of depth and her illness. And I, and I'm glad that you pointed out the illness and the circumstances because it was not, you're right. It wasn't, um, it wasn't Thomas and Martha Wayne, you know, yeah. <laughs> was, you know, it was, it really was like, it, you know, cancer is people typically do not die in an instant from cancer. Right. So, so it is a prolonged illness and it is a prolonged decline. So we did get a lot of depth out of her before she went. So I think, yeah, so I, I I'm, I'm there with you, but I think, I think I still, I still like the fact that I got to ask the question and we got to have that discussion because it shows where again, you can't exactly boil down something to a to a trope and mm. just dismiss it. <laughs> yeah, very true. Speaking of that, there was a really interesting scene at the bus stop where, mm. when they were when Enzo and Denny were dropping Zoe off, there was another father dropping his child off. I can't remember if it was a daughter or a son, mm-hmm. and they would chat and sometimes get coffee. Yeah. And at one point, I guess just trying to 
maybe be friendly but also interest the other father asked you know where Denny's wife was or just to get that and Denny said you know she's recovering from brain surgery I think was the line mm-hmm. and after that the man was always preoccupied well I guess it, to Enzo it's like pretending to be preoccupied and they never had coffee after that and I found that really interesting is that just like we are generally we feel uncomfortable finding out about some of these health things would it have been the same had she died but that's easier than divorce question mark is that true do you think yeah that's a good i i didn't think about the divorce thing i thought more along the lines of that very uh and it's very typical of men and male acquaintances a lot of men don't handle those things very well like um you know like this guy this random guy at the bus stop and everything so that discomfort is like I'm going to shy away from you, which is I mean, it's inherently rude, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with Denny just because his wife, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, when it's something that heavy, we tend to try to avoid it rather than acknowledge it or have the tough conversation, um, especially when somebody you don't very know very well. You know, I mean, they were just acquaintances. They would grab coffee every once in a while. It's not like it was Mike his best friend or something. Right. So, but at the same time, it is very rude, but yeah, I, I'm stereotyping men. I don't know. I think women would have been a little bit more compassionate because I don't think men like that necessarily know how to express or deal with heavy emotions. Mm. But again, I'm stereotyping here and, um, you know, we're around in our podcast community, we're around men who, have moved past that quite a bit and are very supportive of each other. I do appreciate seeing that um, when somebody's parent passes away or somebody is sick or something happens, there's, I see a lot of compassion from, you know, the, the guys we, we know through this, this venture as it is. And that's uh, it's a very heartwarming at times because, um, uh, you know, I didn't grow up around a lot of that. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I've, you know, learn the very typical male thing of keeping a lot of those things to yourself mm. or, or what, or having the appropriate response, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. That being, but like I said, so maybe he's doing that being said, being said though, yeah, it's a little bit rude to be ghosting a person like that. Yeah. I feel like in the moment it might be awkward. Like, yeah. I don't, you know, I, Oh no, I brought something really sad up. Like recently I asked someone, a former colleague of mine, you know, how, how's your son and your daughter-in-law? Because I didn't know, but apparently it's like real bad. And then I was like, oh no, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to bring it up. But then after that, you know, it's just like, you don't mention it again, (laughs) but you go on. But in, in this case, because she said, oh, I can't even get into it. But in this case, if he needed someone, I guess they weren't there in that relationship. I'm just saying like me, I would probably maybe feel really bad that I brought it up, but then I, you kind of move past it. Yeah. So it was just really interesting. Like, yeah, I'm going to pretend to be on my phone, make calls, no more coffee. Just that one instance kind of shut it down where it's the opposite human reaction because you have now separated yourself. You could have provided a relationship and a friendship to this guy. And now when he needs it and now you're like, you're leaving him alone again. Well, yeah, you, and and I think that's the thing about inter- interactivity with, with somebody who you know is going through a hard time, it, especially you don't know them as well. That guy was under no responsibility or obligation to talk about Eve with Denny, right? Yeah. So 
Denny was just looking. I mean, this is my view of it. Denny was just looking for somebody to have some conversation with. In fact, he was kind of probably taking his mind off of the stuff, right? And if that's your person to do that, or that's your five minute, 10 minute cup of coffee escape to do that, yeah. that's, that could be just as valuable as sitting and talking with your best friend and really letting, pouring your heart out about it. You know, and, and this guy obviously didn't see that because he was probably thinking very selfishly. Oh, no, now I've got a, you know, there's a big elephant in the room. It's awkward. Now I have to blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move towards the nature of a soul then, I think, mm-hmm. from this. So in the first chapter, Enzo says, quote, it's what's inside that's important, the soul. And my soul is very human, end quote. How does Enzo's situation, a human soul trapped in a dog's body, influence his opinions about what he sees around him? And how do you feel about the ideas of reincarnation and karma as Enzo defines them? And I think I, because I was logging some pages that I found really interesting, some of the stuff that he was talking about. So as you're looking, I'll read the last paragraph of 162 because I think this is what you were uh, referring to. Sure. She died that night. Her last breath took her soul. I saw it in my dream. I saw her soul leave her body as she exhaled. And then she had no more needs, no more reason. She was released from her body and being released, she continued her journey elsewhere, high in the firmament, firmament where soul material gathers and plays out all the dreams and joys of which we temporal beings can barely conceive all the things that are beyond our comprehension, but even so are not beyond our attainment if we choose to attain them and believe that we truly can. Thank you. And then karma, page 250, it starts anyways. Enzo says, I have an imaginary friend. I call him King Karma. I know that karma is a force in this universe and that people like the evil twins, which are Maxwell and Trish, will receive karmic justice for their actions. I know that this justice will come when the universe deems it appropriate, and it may not be in this lifetime, but in the next, or the one after that. The current consciousness of the evil twins may never feel the brunt of the karma they have incurred, though their souls absolutely will. I understand this concept. But I don't like it, and so my imaginary friend does things for me. If you are mean to someone, King Karma will swoop out of the sky and call you names. If you kick someone, King Karma will bound from an alley and kick you back. If you are cruel and vicious, King Karma will administer a fitting punishment. And that punishment comes up later in the novel. It does come up later in the novel. <gasps> oh, it's one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> what do you, I mean... Yeah, don't be feeding uh, your dog a um, uh, one of those uh, peppers from uh, pepperoncino. Pe- yeah, yeah, from the Papa John's that they always shove in those pizza yeah. boxes for some reason. But yeah, I, how do you feel about these ideas? Uh, I guess is getting some some personal religiosity, spirituality going in this podcast. It, we already started. I mentioned the Bible, and then how, how do you feel like his situation, as we call it, his his human soul trapped in a dog's body, influence his opinions about what he sees around him? My sister's going to be really upset. She really Ooh. was convinced that all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> That's what the cartoons in the '80s told her. You know, this funny enough. This makes me think of Plato, or at least that, that passage on 162, like, remember that was the Phaedo where, um, Phaedo? Phaedo. Where, uh, Socrates is discussing death and then he drinks the hemlock, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, he, 
and I'm I'm paraphrasing from the last time I read it, which was 25 years ago. So forgive me for not being completely accurate here, but there was something about like the soul, like the the body being a vessel for the soul in a sense. And I don't think it ever really clearly defined where the soul went after it left the body. And and I don't really have much of a spiritual philosophy or religious philosophy on anything really but i like that idea that there's something about what's inside of you that there is something of a soul that is beyond the comprehension of your human self um which is what he seems to be saying here and i think that concept of karma is also <laughs> i think i like I kind of like that. I mean, granted, I'm being petty, yeah. but because um, he can be very petty. But um, but no, I, I do like I, I like what he has to say in this because it comes from a genuine, very genuine place as far as the character is concerned. Like we see this philosophy grow in him and we see these ideas um, come because like it, it's the framing device of the novel is the end of his the moments of the end of his life. Right. So this is all one big flashback as he is very close to dying. But he never sets himself up to be a sage, right? It, it mm-hmm. comes out of him as as he learns. Like we see him learn, and I like that. And I I I think the way that scene with Eve and his death on once he's written is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I think Stein does really well here is he doesn't ascribe it to one particular faith, right? Mm-hmm. Like because you know I don't. There are different theologies and philosophies about the existence of a soul and and what happens to your soul if you die. Are you judged, you know, and then sent in one direction or the other up until I don't know how many hundreds of years ago did you sit in purgatory, according to the Catholics, you know, or is there something of a reincarnation or something? But from what I gathered, most most spiritualities, religions, faiths and even a lot of philosophies agree on the concept of something akin to a soul am i am i completely off base here that he's not ascribing one religion to this book but he is kind of kind of saying that like yeah we all kind of do have this idea of a soul that or am i just no yeah no i'm having a fever dream (laughs) no i think i think that i would agree certainly i when we get into karma and reincarnation Mm -hmm. it's that's those are tough tenets i think to really assign to christianity so you might not be able to do it but i think that this is unless you're just like irreligious i think that this novel is can be palatable to any religion potentially Mm -hmm. you know so yeah i i would agree with you i I think it adds a really interesting perspective uh, coming from him and how he's viewing everything and i feel like because of his situation as this question says you know that his human soul basically being prepared to be in a a human body but it's in a dog body right now and thinking about these things of reincarnation and karma that enzo lives his best life and he lives a good life and this was something that i Mm -hmm. i was actually i was recently talking about on my own podcast just there's that kind of difference there and he just he tries to be the best version of himself 
that he can. And he also tries to be, you know, a quote unquote good person, how he cares for other people. He recognizes his flaws and that he may not like Eve as much, but he, he tries the best he can. And when she gives him a mission, he holds hit up his end of the deal. And he looks at other people and sees that they're not living up to their potential of being good people. Um, so that's something that he can certainly, you know, this whole thing is an observation on humanity and mm -hmm. from a dog's perspective who wants to be a human and believes he will be taking all those lessons and, and bringing that forward. So my hope is, of course, that the little boy Enzo, which we're led to believe that this is Enzo the dog and, the, and he's finally been formed. He's got his thumbs that he lives up to his potential and lives his best life and, and his good life as well. Karma is really interesting, you know, from a a Christian perspective, you know, we're told that we are not punished, you know, for the things that happen, even though I feel like whenever I do something bad, something inevitably bad happens to me afterwards. So I guess it's just coincidence, but it feels a bit suspicious. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get our comeuppance in the end or we'll have our judgment later. Reincarnation. I was told by an Anglican priest at one point that we're all allowed one heresy. And technically I have two heresies. One is more serious than the other that I won't bring up. But the, the, what my one heresy that I will choose to keep with me, and I like the heresy, is that <laughs> I like, I think reincarnation is a really fun idea and I wish it actually existed. I mean, the, the point of Christianity, of course, is that when we die, our, we go up there and we're, that we live out our eternal lives, of course, in heaven and, and with Christ. But mm. uh, it's fun to think that I could be reincarnated as my favorite animal, my favorite thing <laughs> in existence, a moose. Like, that would be amazing. So, you know, it's just like a, it's a fun little idea, but you have to hold up <laughs> your end of it because you are in a very karmic way those things are i think they're probably hopefully this is not heretical in terms of that religion but i think that they intersect because if you live a bad life then your next life or your next form in the next life is not going to be fun so you know if i were living a bad life i'd probably next life be the stink bug so i've got to live <laughs> my best life so that yeah. i can uh be a moose in the in the in the next life but that's you know that's my my one heresy that i choose to <laughs> <laughs> it's just that it's a fun idea and I enjoy it. Like I said, I, I don't, I'm, I don't have a, a set f set of beliefs in this regard here, like a definitive one. It seems to be fluid, but the idea that the soul goes somewhere, whether it is to another plane or that there's unfinished business on this one. And therefore you're either reincarnated or may perhaps you become a ghost and you have to haunt. You know, there's I mean, that's not really mentioned in this book, but there's also I think of that. I think of people who are who are haunting. Right? I, I honestly do believe in ghosts. And if they're ghost haunting, there's something there's something that has not been completed on this on this particular plane. And they have to be here or they are reincarnated as a moose and, and flop about the northern part of Canada with very polite drivers letting them cross the street. Um, but, yeah, there's and, and uh, what's funny is that. When I think of what I learned in Sunday school and, and, and as a kid in religion in the Lutheran church, <laughs> I, I start, well, I just, I'm just trying to be just, just to, just to delineate where I'm coming from because the, you know, we, we talk about Christianity 
but there are there are sects of Christ, there are denominations of Christianity where they are very judgmental about about they do believe that an action has consequences, right? Yeah. You know, um, one of my my the pastor who married us is Lutheran, but he said he was raised Methodist in a type of church where like you have to walk the straight line, but if you take one inch either way, you're going to hell. Like mm-hmm. that type of really really strict. A very southern Methodist upbringing. But I, I think of, I wonder if sometimes, and this is just me spouting crap off the top of my head, if our vision of heaven as we see in popular culture or culture in general or in scripture or whatever is a kind of like the allegory of the cave, right? Like we cannot fully comprehend what the afterlife is actually like. Because it's a, it's a plane of existence that is just, you, you cannot know, you do not know what you're going to be like. You're not going to be corporeal, right? So you're, you could be a spirit and it could be a totally different, totally different thing, right? Mm. You know, cause, cause when you're, you know, a lot of times the, the, we think of like, oh, it'll be great. You get to do everything you ever wanted. And sometimes you think about that and you're like, yeah, but isn't like everything I want, like pleasures of the flesh that people say as a sin, like, you know, a lot of us are kind of geared towards sin when we think of like, yeah, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to pig out and <laughs> play, play rock music all day. I don't think God's going to exactly let me do that, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it so I, I think that we, we cannot fully comprehend it, but I do like this, what he, yeah, I, I'm kind of like with you. I'm like, if we've got something we still have to do or there is a reward in some way before we ascend that we get to play out this other life of being a dog, you know, or being mm-hmm. a moose or being human in case of uh, in his case. Yeah. It's interesting too, to me that he gets, he, that Stein writes him as forming a philosophical view on life, you know, because of what he sees and what he comprehends through watching um, TV and stuff. Yeah. You know, that, that again. Um, well, I look forward to Professor Allen shouting out to us. <laughs> shouting at me. <laughs> shouting out to you. Who knows? <laughs> I should. Yeah, Alan, do you have any heresies? <laughs> what a question. That should be a um, an icebreaker question. What's your heresy? What is my heresy? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Probably a lot of them. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, boy. I'd have to set foot in a church to have a heresy. I, yeah, I, I guess that might be true. Well, I have three more questions. One of them makes sense because we've done something similar to this before. And then a wrap-up and a positive question. Okay, so first question is about sexual assault. Oh, yes. Okay, so the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because of the film. The film, they took it out. The conflict in the film is some weird, not really even a shoving match, but Denny kind of shoved Maxwell once it was heating up about this custody battle. And then Maxwell pulled a a male football player situation at English football and like dramatically fell and like, Oh, he's injured. So they kind of added like assault and battery or something like that to it. So the sexual assault didn't come, come into play at all. And I thought it very interesting because I forgot that detail until I was rereading and thinking about all this film. Why'd you do that? And so I just wondered if you had any thoughts about 
the scene in the book, of course. And then why would it be? Do you have any thoughts about why they may not have included that and decided to switch it out? What's the rating on the film? PG-13. I was wondering if for the film, if they, I know it's a PG-13 movie, but it having having it in a movie... I haven't seen the film. I just read the summary of it on Wikipedia because he said it was changing the film, so I wanted to know what it was. Maybe to make it family-friendly enough. Okay. So, like, the, to tone it down so that it would feel a little bit better. Although I don't know... The, 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 the consequences he faces for the rape allegations are really harsh. Yeah. I don't think he would have faced that level of consequence for people around him had he just simply gotten to a shoving match with his father-in-law and been charged with assault mm-hmm. because he got into a fight. Because he I, he essentially can barely work as a result because he is facing not just rape. He's facing, like, statutory rape very close to child molestation. Yeah. That's a much more serious crime than shoving somebody, right? Getting into a physical altercation with another adult male. And... So he, so the consequences that he faces in society and the, the, the he like to the point where like he loses that, like he has to he is fighting a huge uphill battle, you know, and he loses just about everything aside from Enzo. He almost loses his daughter. I don't want to say it makes the attempted rape. It makes the moment necessary in that Stein follows up with it in a very, very serious, realistic way, mm-hmm. right? The minute they were in the car together, I was like, please don't sleep with her. Like, I was – because I was wondering if something was going to happen between the two of them. And then when it doesn't and he rightfully flips out – and this is where the brilliance of having Enzo as the narrator comes in, because just like Eve's sickness, he knows exactly what's going on, but he can't say anything. Mm-hmm. I think he barks at her, but like he he can't get on the he like he can't get on the stand, or right? he even imagines himself on the stand later on. Like, and that's where you feel frustrated because you're kind of there with him. It's like, oh, I wish he could say something. He knows. He knows. <laughs> yeah. It, it and and when that happens. Like, my first thought was, this is going to be important later. Like, he would not – he he doesn't strike me as the type of writer who drops something like that in the middle of a book just for the sake of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Or to prove that Dan, Denny's, like, a really upstanding guy. You know, it's like, no, that was a pretty elaborate scene. This is going to have consequences, and it does. So I don't think it works if you change it. I it would be interesting to see how it plays out because it doesn't seem realistic enough to me is if it, if it happens the way it exactly does in the novel with all the consequences and stuff, just for a simple assault and battery, that doesn't add up to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think people would cut him a lot more slack. They would cut him a lot more for the assault I, and battery. People outside of his, of, of the people who are prosecuting him or, or, or like suing him. Yes. would cut, cut him a lot. Like his employer would cut him a lot more slack. His friend, like, there would be more people who would be like a little more understanding about like what happened as opposed to being accused of essentially raping a 15 year old. Yeah. Which is, again, it's close to molesting a child. Yeah. I did not leap to that PG 13. Yeah. Make it, maybe it would have been too R too edgy. Mm -hmm. So that's good that you bring that up. I was wondering if people just were uncomfortable having a man be a victim of sexual assault. 
And so they they weren't sure how to necessarily portray that or maybe thought that, oh, this wouldn't be believable, especially in the time of, of Me Too and that sort of thing. Yeah, he he's not at any point shown to be Joey Buttafuoco or what's-his-face Humbert, Humbert from Lolita, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. he, in the weekend at the ski lodge cabin he's picking up what she is sending and he is trying to avoid her. Yeah. But at the same time, he's, he's trying to avoid her, but he's, he's doing it too politely in that. Like, so she's so, so that's why she thinks he's leading her on. Mm -hmm. And that's where the little bit of the gray area for, at least as far as everybody who quote witnessed over the weekend is concerned. You know, there is a point where he does, he makes, you know, yes, she, she does attempt an assault. I, I don't, I guess she, you know, she tries to, I, you know, I, I was going to phrase it like she tries to seduce him or she comes on to him or she makes a move or something. I the, the word assault was never actually in my mind as far as what she does to him. Um, but he makes the mistake of not, of letting it get to that point. Right. He could have told her, no, you don't need to go in the car with me. Why don't you let me go by myself? I don't want you to get injured and left her at the cabin. He could have been a lot more rude or a lot more not rude, but forthright with the putting distance between him and her when she was hanging around him at the cabin. Like there could have been something he did earlier in that weekend so that that night never happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't want to blame the victim here, but you know, even he is probably aware of that. Which is why, I mean, he does own whatever part he may have played mm-hmm. when he sees her at the cafe and, you know, does yeah. does apologize for sure. Yeah. Because I think being a man and being a victim is a tricky situation because there is that power structure. But whatever she's doing, I mean, it, it really did give me the heebie-jeebies. And I know that I've made fun of Tarantula and Dick Grayson in the past, but it's... No one, no one deserves to be, you know, put in that sort of situation, and it's really no laughing matter. So I apologize for all it, the jokes I may have made about Nightwing and Tarantula. It, the other thing I think that bugged me about that moment, it was the way it was written. Like, it seemed a little too softcore porn. Isn't she, like, totally naked in the room, and she's all, like... Yeah, because it's, she's it's, crying, and whenever he went to go comfort her, she would, like, stick her arms out, and then, like, her breasts would be exposed, and then he would draw back yeah. again, and yeah. Yeah, it, it just it, – it, it seemed very, very forward. It doesn't paint her as a very good character. No. You know, and, and, and she is there – granted, she exists for the sole purpose of getting him in trouble yep. and prolonging the conflict. I don't think she is a villain – her the in-laws are villains yeah yeah i i think i that could have been written a little bit better the the specific scene and her specific character because the he does write her a bit too amy fisher or lolita etc so it's a little too much a little too like you little mix with the big boobs and everything you're just like well he points out the fact that she is for a 15 year old girl she is she is 
pretty. She does not look fifteen. She looks much older. I think she's fifteen in the in, in, when it happens. I might be wrong. So he 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 could have been a little more deft in the way he wrote that scene because it is a little too. It's almost cheesy in the way it's done. Mm. Like all of a sudden he wakes up and she's kind of. Why would if it plays out the way Enzo sees it, he passes out on the bed, right? Yep. And he wakes up and she's naked and reaching for him in, in his pants. And for all intents and purposes, they didn't do anything together prior to that, right? Because she had gone to the, take a shower or something. Yeah, and he was put – and Zoe's there, remember? Yeah, Zoe's there. So yeah. so basically nothing had happened and all of a sudden, like, he's completely passed out, like, tired, and she's going to do that. That's what didn't play well for me, because I'm just like, why would she do that, right? Mm-hmm. If she was going to make a move, why didn't she make a move while he was there, if if she thought he was getting all these signals, right? And I, I know I'm, like, being really nitpicky about this, but it's so central to a lot of the conflicts, especially when things get worse for him. This place is slightly unrealistic. Like and maybe like maybe I'm overthinking it. I just think a much more not forceful, but something when they're both conscious on her part. So, so, I don't know. It's just it. Like I said, it it played out. It was a very very strange scene. Like we don't know what would what would what was her motivation to do that, right? To do it when he was sleeping, you mean? Yeah, like like so. I I totally see the flirting, right? And and you see the crush and the flirting that result revolves uh, results from the crush or expression of this crush that she kind of has on him in the weekend. There's a logic to that, right? Mm-hmm. The I want to go home with you. Okay, she is thinking of something, but we don't know enough about her as a person or a character to say that the leap from. We were in the car together. I have a crush on him. I was flirting with him to he's going to let me shower to he's passed out on the bed. Let me let me try to have sex with him when he's unconscious. I, there, there's there's something missing in there. And I don't even know. I don't know if, the, if it's because of Enzo's narration or Stein didn't write it well enough. Well, I mean, if it were reversed, I mean, don't I shouldn't say all the time, but I mean, that's something that. I'd be like, yeah, of course that's happening. That a guy is doing this while a girl is sleeping. So isn't it? Is it just not? You can't fill in the gaps because it seems so strange because the roles are reversed gender-wise. It it does, and and in this case, to be completely honest with you, if it were reversed the exact way that these characters are, Denny's still the adult with the, you know, it it, it wouldn't have happened in the novel anyway because <laughs> because that why would he have her you know if she were unconscious and he did that like then he becomes the villain of the story and he's not supposed to be the villain of the story right so that wouldn't have happened but but yeah i mean maybe i'm maybe i'm just saying being i don't know i don't know if i'm being sexist by saying i just don't see that happening or that he's making her out to be too much of a s word you know or, or something it just it doesn't as much as I like the fact that he explores the consequences of these actions to their fullest, the scene doesn't sit well with me. And the other thing it invites for me that really bothered me as it was going on 
was the possibility that somebody set her up to do this, which I don't think is possible. I don't think so, but they certainly used it. It's, but I don't know how they would have had to dig because yeah, how it's not like she didn't tell her father. She just said that she she didn't like the couch or whatever. It was uncomfortable. I think so, she told her father on the way home. She told her father at some point. I think she told somebody at some point. Well, I think they were looking for dirt, and then she. Oh, they were looking for dirt, and they got it. But because of the the weird nature of this scene, and then everything that happens in her thing, part of me, and I hate that it happened. Part of me started to wonder if this was deliberate to entrap him, and and it was just a small part of me, but it was enough for me to be like, a, that's totally unrealistic. And be really smarmy. <laughs> Take that away. It's still smarmy that they're using this the way they do. Mm. Because I don't think Maxwell cares about Anika. Oh, no. they're just. I using, think he's yeah. using this. And that, to me, is smarmy. Of course. And Trish at one point says, you know, that it seems a bit suspicious. And... Mm-hmm. That Anika has a reputation anyways. Yeah, and that was – that's the other thing. It's like – but we didn't know that pri- – like that's the thing. It's like – but even then, it, this, that, that's where I think there's a lot of leaps in logic and leaps and, th- and things in here that with her is not a very um, well-fleshed-out character uh, that we just kind of have to – we have to just kind of go with it. And, mm. and I did – I thought that – and I, I and I was able to go with it because of the way it plays out after the assault, you know. Mm, yeah. It made for a worthwhile discussion. Yeah, I can't stand his in-laws. They're yeah, Trish <sighs> is a bit more palatable than Maxwell, but yeah, I don't really know. Dude, what, what, yeah. The body is in the house, like she's not even in the ground, and you're serving him with yeah. papers. And I was super sad about the funeral too. Uh, the funeral is so awful. It's just you. Just curse words <laughs> flying out of my mouth, yeah. right? But I was reading that. I'm like, I'm like, wow, just wow. Yeah. And Can and I'm let him mourn his wife. And I know you're. I know you're processing grief in some way. F you. Like, ah. Oh. <laughs> so that's not an excuse for what you did to that to that person. Yeah. Well, to try to pull it back to happier <laughs> times, uh, just two more questions. One of them is from you about the resolution. Was it too quick and too nice or romantic of a re- resolution? Was it too happy of an ending? This is why I said I kind of like the book because I did not like this. It's okay. way too – I'm gets, glad we're getting to that because I was about to say, yeah. excuse me, why didn't you like it? It's, it's – <sighs> I wanted him to get custody of Zoe and I wanted him to have a, I wanted him to be okay. But like daddy, a Ferrari daddy Warbucks sweeping in and him like with the championship at the end and everything, it's just too Disney movie. Mm. It's way too Disney movie and it's way too, I'm like this would have never freaking happened in real life. And you, you had a, a novel that was exploring things from a really complex way, a really complex perspective with the, you know, you have a complex narrator and the dog, like who Enzo is really exploring this whole idea of humanity and with, with what is going on with the lawsuit and everything, you really see this person struggle and there should be a reward from struggling, but it's almost like 
yeah, you could probably barely pick up. I can barely snap my fingers. Um, you're snapping your fingers and everything is wonderful at the end. I just, it, it, not that I wanted him to keep suffering, but it was way too much for me. You don't like the storytelling or you just feel like this would never happen in real life? I just don't think it would happen in real life. It was just like all of a sudden, like, oh, and everything, they all lived happily ever after. It's, it's a freaking Disney movie. And I'm like, no, like have him, have him have like, have him get back on his feet, have something that yes, we see him in the future maybe. And or maybe we don't see the future and we just have an assurance that he is going to be okay. Yeah. And that's why Enzo is leaving. I just, you know, I, I don't like it. Okay. I'm, this is going to sound horrible. I'm glad the dog dies. Yikes. Because just like Eve leaving, there's a sense of, I'm not scared of this. I've done what I was supposed to do. I took care of these two and it's my time. And it's a very sad moment and a sad moment of acceptance. And I think if we had been left with this, with a shorter epilogue or, or more closer epilogue, where we knew that reading that, that Denny and Zoe were going to be okay. And Enzo had done everything and leaving us with the hope that he was going to get what he wanted or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would have been more satisfied than with what we got. I think it was it was it was schmaltzy, and I I don't like that. I see, I see. Well, now we know who Tom really is. Well, you know, I get that, I get that, and and I hope that. Well, I think it it falls in line with karma, honestly, uh, mm-hmm. with Enzo's idea of karma, and that Denny was really trying to do the right thing in many really tough situations, and so it finally got paid back to him in a positive way. So I think it does follow narratively. It's, I mean, there are things leading up to it. The fact that he is getting, gaining the attention of different people. So it's not like Luca comes out of nowhere, but it was, I mean, how many people are going to wait on that situation? He said, I know your situation. Let me know when it pans out. I mean, it could have been years because I think this gets wrapped up sooner than in real it, life it takes probably, a few months yeah. yeah i think anika and her confession that she lied is uh something that's that accelerates it towards its end but it could be years so just to think that someone's waiting for it so i get that but i like to think i mean denny is a pretty decent guy i would say and so to have something nice happen for him i i enjoy and to know that enzo dies knowing that denny is you know, taking care of, I think, is nice as well. So I know you don't like the saccharin endings. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I guess I can see in real life how that might be problematic, but <laughs> I liked it. So yeah. I don't know what to say. Yes, I realize that it is very convenient, but I'm I'm fine with it given that we were put through the ringer for 100-plus pages. Yeah, I okay. Well, our final question, or my final question is... Do you find yourself looking at dogs, and if you ever owned one, your own dog, differently after reading this novel? I've never owned a, a, a pet, actually. Oh. My sister has a rabbit. My uh, <laughs> Oh, geez. Let's I read can't... Watership Down next. <laughs> no. Um, when I was a kid, my, my mom's allergies are really, really bad, so oh. we really didn't have pets. Um, we had a couple of hamsters, and then, and then like a, then my sister had a rabbit. My sister has a rabbit now. It's very cute. I could never actually own a cat because I am I can be around cats, but too much time spent around cats. I am horribly allergic to cats. Dogs I tend to deal with a little bit better, <laughs> allergy wise, but I've never actually owned one. 
I was scared of them when I was a little kid too. So, um, I don't know. I just, I still find dogs fun and cute and, and silly. This is, this is a total cliche. I wonder if there's truth to the, to the idea that the, that a dog kind of finds their master in some mm-hmm. way. And the master's not the best word. Their owner, their person, yeah, their person. Let's human. just use their person. They're human. Mm-hmm. Cause I've watched a couple of my friends, um, foster dogs and then eventually adopt them because they were just going to foster the dog. And all of a sudden I fell in love with the dog and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe they found you like, right. You know, and, and I think there's a lot more to, um, I guess, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to animals like that who are, and they have a better sense than we give them credit for very often, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so I think, I think there's, there's something, there is something kind of philosophical behind the eyes of, of a dog. There's something diabolical behind the eyes of a cat, though. <laughs> That's because they are all about mischief and taking over the world and testing <laughs> gravity, et cetera. And, <laughs> and, and what the hell are you doing here aside from, making sure that I am fed. No doubt. <laughs> Except yeah. for my neighbor's cat who likes that spot, like right on our porch where the sun hits and just splays out. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> so like, you're cute. I'll let you there. I'll let you stay there. But no, yeah, dogs. I think, I, I think there's something to be said about this, the, the this whole idea of, of something, something behind the, 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 an animal, a pet. Yeah. So, I have had several animals in my lifetime. None currently, though. If I, though, because of you know the the current situation, many of you are like, you should get a cat. Yeah, but you you're like in be. a small apartment. Yeah. Oh, that's that's hard. But also just like as a mental health kind of being to be with mm. you. But yeah, it's kind of hard being in a one bedroom because you don't. Re- Number one, dog. That's like having another human in here to on yeah. the dog. And I would feel really guilty leaving them alone for nine hours. Give me a break. And then with the cat, I just don't know where I would put the litter box. But I've, yeah, had animals growing up. And some of them, I had a really good relationship with a a sheepdog named Liza who there's a picture of me as a toddler within a circular uh, fence, like a play area, and she was guarding me. And later on, I guess my young adult time we had a three-legged german shepherd we named wolverine or wolvie for short and he was probably he was super intelligent you could tell that there was definitely you know something going on he was just super aware of things so i i don't know i guess it makes me look back and think oh yeah there was definitely you know more more behind this furry (laughs) exterior i think Mm -hmm. but i i always feel like they know what's up. I mean, when yeah. you when they make a poo and you are like, "What did you do?" and they are like not making eye contact with you, that kind of <laughs> stuff, you know they know what's up. Again, because you know, I've I've not been like the kindest necessarily to all because some, sometimes kind of the dumber animals just annoy me. So I do regret Hannah, which was a lab that my mother got. I just I did not care for that dog, but you want to be, and I think we're called to be, here's more religion. Why is religion popping up in this as well? But we're we're called to be stewards of nature. And so to, just like Enzo is trying to be caring and loving of everyone, like we, we should also be, this is true for humans as well as animals, just be caring and loving towards all of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
and page 232. Get busy, boy, get busy. I didn't go outside. I looked up at him and I thought about what he was doing, how he was rending our family, pulling apart the fabric of our lives for his own smug, self-congratulatory purposes. I thought about how he and Trish were grossly inferior guardians for my Zoe. I crouched in my stance right there inside the house and I shat a massive, soupy, pungent pile of diarrhea on his beautiful, expensive linen-colored Berber carpet. What the hell, he shouted at me. Bad dog. I turned and trotted carefully, cheerfully to Zoe's room. Get busy, mother I said as I left. But of course, <laughs> he couldn't hear me. As I settled into my lagoon, this is actually goes back to our zebra thing. I, I was stuffed animals. I heard Maxwell exclaim loudly and call for Trish to clean up my mess. I looked at the zebra, still perched on his throne of lifeless animal carcasses, and I growled at it very softly, but very ominously. And the demon knew. The demon knew not me to mess with that mess with me that night, not that night or ever again. It's one of my favorite moments of the book. And the whole demon thing, we were talking about how later he just kind of, you know, has that realization. It's it's a really good point. So, yeah. And you get yours, too, if you mess with animals. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. You get yours. You do. Well, of course, the final question, or the penultimate, since I'll ask you later on what we're reading, is do you believe this to be required reading? I would say it's worth reading, but I would not say it was required reading. I would agree with you. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice, you might have to have some serious conversations with the student, but a nice independent read mm -hmm. or an outside reading book. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, so we, we actually don't have a ton of feedback. Um, we have two comments. Joe Crawford said regarding a separate piece, a book so nice I've read it thrice, middle, high school, middle school, high school, and college. Did you, were, did you ever read assigned reading? Were you ever assigned a book of multiple, multiple times across uh, middle, high school, and college? Ooh, middle, high school, and college? I don't believe so. Though That probably would have annoyed me if mm -hmm. I had. I can think of some of Shakespeare's plays. I read As You Like It more than once. I may have been assigned Antigone in, in high school and college. I know I was assigned great expectations in ninth grade and then in my junior year of ugh. college. Ugh, ugh. Yeah, not not my favorite thing. It was better the second time around, but I still didn't really enjoy it. And I do know for a fact that I was I was assigned Emma by Jane Austen at mm. least twice, maybe three times. And, in and you got away with not reading it? No, I read it. It was if there's a Jane Austen novel that I enjoyed, it was Emma. Oh, that's good. I, I remember enjoying it, especially the second time around. So um, I, th I think I only I think it was only twice, though. Um, but yeah, so that was that was it. But I was never assigned the same book more than like it, middle and high school. Like we never uh, repeated. All right. And then Robert Ward shared some really great stuff with us lately, uh, including links to audiobook recordings of the Bell Jar, an article on the recent banning of mouse in a school district in Tennessee. And then an article with the headline, Olivia Lang, I'm sorry, but Jane Eyre is a horrendous little hysteric. I think, number one, heresy. Number two, <laughs> I don't think she's hysterical. I don't know about that. That's them's fighting words. <laughs> I just... I just yeah, laugh it up. Laugh it up. I'm just I'm gonna throw the lit match into that room full of gasoline and walk away. That's terrible. 
so yeah, so if you want to uh, send us some feedback about this, um, uh, I really do hope we get some some commentary on uh, what we were talking about. Perhaps uh, some of our Canadian listeners can clue us into is the behavior of moose in in the upper parts of Canada. But um, but if you have any thoughts about anything like that, uh, or 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 the religion discussion we had, or or the the scene in, we were discussing earlier, feel free to send us along. Absolutely. Well, now you know what time it is. Yes. It's the time where we learn what despairing novel we're going to read <laughs> next. To my recollection, in this, nobody dies. <laughs> Animal. Maybe a few bugs. I don't know. They do worry about bears and getting mauled by bears, but I don't. Nobody gets mauled by a bear. Um, we are actually going to do some nonfiction. We're going to we're going to be doing a. I think this is a first in this particular genre. We're going to be uh, going into travel writing, like travel travel logs. The one we're going to be doing is is actually one of the more well known ones from the early two thousands by a nonfiction writer who's quite prolific but did start out as a travel writer and he is bill bryson and the book is a walk in the woods his memoir of hiking the appalachian trail Yay! and she's completely silent yeah, i mean we'll so. see maybe we'll we'll start some sort of travel journal ourselves mm, yeah it's certainly lighter reading than the bell jar <laughs> which was my last think? selection so you think it will be lighter than this yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it's a little lighter than this. <laughs> so, all right, yeah. So we'll be we'll be back for that. And as always, you can check out the blog for show notes, and you can get in touch with us wherever you are. And thank you, as always, for listening. And take care. And if you're ordering lots of Papa John's and just don't know what to do with those pepper scenes, I really. <sighs> Highly suggest, highly strongly suggest, highly recommend, do not feed the pepperoncini to your animal. Unless there's someone who's really pissed you off and they really need consequences. <laughs> then just like get the jar of pepperoncini, chow down, mm-hmm. and like set him loose in the neighbor's yard. Wow. That's, that's almost like psychotic behavior because you got to plan it out because you're like oh can we come over and visit and then before the visit you're plying your animal with a pepperoncini it's called playing the long game Stella. oh my <laughs> it's gosh it's called playing the long game wow wow okay you heard it here first folks tom is a but you don't you don't do it when they're around you 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 do it when they're not like you you plan it so that the dog does it and they discover this right so you like you know on their porch or something you know they have to be inside oh so yeah yeah like you really think of it's 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 the it's it's the the dog diarrhea of equivalent of just kind of like making a phone call and you know having somebody you know it's you, you put that hit out Okay, well, Tom, I just want to <laughs> remind you that I know where you live, so you better not do anything to make me upset. Oh, you have proven that you are not somebody to be messed with. I didn't need that. I didn't need you to tell me that right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Okay. We, yeah. I'm good. I'm not as scared as you of you as Shag is. Yeah. But I'm good. So. Famous last words. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Good night. Goodbye.
Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. You're finding your joy. Finding my joy! Thank you, Shag Jr. Oh, God, no! (laughs) What was that?